Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom, wake up. Wake up. Good morning. I'm here. I'm sorry. I was just staring Tom, off into the ceiling. Tom was kicked back in the chair. Tom's here, and we got Daniel Stevenson on the phone from, I guess, random northeast Louisiana. He said he's driving down the road. So, Daniel, good to hear from you, buddy. Yeah, good to be here with you guys. So, where are you headed? I'm headed to the great state of Alabama to uh, see some family. We get we get five days off from Mardi Gras in Louisiana. So, um, it's pretty nice, so we're taking advantage of it. I'm in a car with wife and three daughters. And hopefully, they stay quiet during all this. But if you hear a scream, it's liable to happen. Hey, Melanie. She can't. I've got headphones. Uh, okay. So they just hear the one-sided conversation of Daniel blathering on. <laughs> yeah, well, she's used, she's used to me blathering on. She calls them manisms. I start talking. She'll say, I don't want to hear a manism. Mansplaining. I'm sorry. She corrected me. Mansplaining. <laughs> Why are y'all going that way? Going to Birmingham. She went up 65 to Tallulah. Okay, so that's the closest way to go, go up and hit Interstate 20? Yeah. Okay. And you cut across the open meridian and 2059 up to, to uh, Tuscaloosa. You do have that pesky little obstacle of the Mississippi River, so oh, you got to get across cool. that dude somewhere. Minor tributary. Well, the, the first obstacle is get through Newleton, Louisiana, without getting a speeding ticket. So that's where I'm driving. I'm, I'm coming into <laughs> Newleton right now. So all you Newleton folks, I'm slowing down. I had met him before, unfortunately, but I got reacquainted with a Mississippi Highway Patrolman last week on Highway 61. So, what you going to do? It happens. You get a piece of paper out of it, or I, did he let you fall? I did, and I guess all I'll say is it could have been worse. <laughs> he was gun shy for like 45 minutes of the drive that week. Then that we went somewhere, he he said, oh, "I got a speeding ticket the other day. I'm gonna have to slow I it may, down." I mean, it was you, about 45 minutes of slower, Jason. <laughs> you drive 55 on Highway 61. Yeah. No, I can't do it. I don't drive anything less than 63. I, you might as well get out and run. I mean, it just feels <laughs> like you're running in mud. So Daniel's on with us today, and we're going to talk about burndown. And we're right in the, the middle of that, even though it's not much burndown going on today, given the fact that it's 35 degrees and pouring down rain. But we've gotten quite a bit done at this point. But Daniel, you know I'm going to ask you something kooky, and, and this is tailored especially for you. In your time as a weed scientist, what is the craziest thing that you've ever seen in your plots or gone to a field and seen? Oh, my goodness. You should have told me this beforehand so I could have thought about it. It works better if you don't get to think about it. Craziest thing I've ever seen. A jug of uh, Estefan looked just like a jug of uh, a brown up. This guy oversprayed his cock with Estefan and he completely dropped off the squares. Ouch. That's probably the, the craziest thing. I don't think I'm the only person who's ever seen that. But yeah, that some of those times you sit there and you think, what am I going to do? And I, my response was, I ain't got a clue what you're going to do. <laughs> now, when I was younger, I remember when pigs were real expensive and MSMA was not, growers would spray MSMA over their cotton back home at the act of the pigs because it stunted that cotton just like pigs did. 
when we were kids and for sure before then, but you were kind of forced to do a lot of things on cotton that you probably knew weren't the smartest thing in the world, but <laughs> you really didn't have any other options. So yeah, I could, I could see that. And you knew they were just because that stem would be just nice red. Yep. <laughs> bright, bright red. Daniel, you're driving across the, the Delta part of Louisiana. So I guess tell us what you're seeing down there, burn down wise, and we'll approach it from there and get started on a conversation about burn down. We don't have to go down the road. There's a like state shortages. Um, we all know about that. We won't beat that dead horse. But it is so apparent the producers who chose to include glyphosate in the burn down and those that did not, where you have they did a good job of, of burning down the winter weed. They had glyphosate in it. You can just look at the fields. Whether you get out and you're driving 60 miles an hour, I can say, had glyphosate, didn't have glyphosate. Had glyphosate, didn't have glyphosate. That's pretty apparent. And I, I was I was concerned this was going to happen because I'm not sure that we all realize, I mean, scientists, farmers, consultants, dealers, just what all glyphosate did for us. I can get out in any field that hadn't been sprayed, and I can walk the length of the truck, and I'll find five to eight different wheat species out there. And glyphosate may not have been you know, a 10 out of 10 on it. You, know, when you mix an auction with it, you, know, you get, get up to that. But when you leave it out, then you start getting a bunch of five, fours out of 10. So that's the one thing I've seen that uh, a lot of these fields that did receive glyphosate are going to have to have something else for the plant, particularly corn. That would be paraquat, which I'm hearing is short too. We've heard the same thing here about paraquat, and I'll echo what you say about the glyphosate. And I've said that a variety of ways at different times, but the laundry list of weed species that's listed as controlled on the Roundup label, <laughs> those are there for a reason. Absolutely. With burn down, it's even a little bit more because a post-emergence application in the crop, you have a variety of things present at the, at the time of those post-emergence applications, but the diversity is probably not as much as it is during burn down. You know, you might have depending on the field, four to six species out there. But with burn down, like you said, you go out there and start walking around in January, February in a field that hadn't, you know, didn't receive a fall treatment, you're going to see a bunch of different stuff. And then the other part of burn down is we make big burn down applications. So you have a single treatment that's going over, farms not not a group of fields it's going over the whole farm then two we usually make that application and then we're not coming back around on a weekly schedule like we would during the summer and so following up on it is not quite as quick and then you said you have some numbers that turn into fours and fives without the roundup and then you would have expected it to be much higher but you also didn't even know what that stuff was because you never had to think about it because you always had roundup in your burn down and the stuff always died until you leave the roundup out and then it doesn't 
over my career, I'd have a pro or a consultant either call me and send me a, or send me a picture of a weed, and it's just something I haven't seen before. I mean, because Louisiana is just there's no weed species you can shake a stick here, and I'd always say, "Did you leave two four D out?" Yep. Well, that's probably why you have it, because where you see you just don't see that way because C4D was acting. That's happened some with the African glyphosate. I'll see a picture, and my first question is, did you leave glyphosate out? Yep. Well, that's why you've got that weed. I mean, I don't have to necessarily ID it. It's just, it's just the way it is because it covers so many bases for us. And we're going to see that in crop. I know this is not an in crop conversation, but these guys who leave out don't put it in the crop because they don't have it or they're trying to save a little money. They're going to have some issues. Why don't you two speculate? Are they trying to save money on the front end now or are they trying to conserve product for in-season availability? Both. Both. I've had, I've had a lot of guys that are saving. Like they speak in, I've got enough for one in-crop application this season in all my crops. That's, that's the way they'll look at it. So they say, okay, if I'm a 1,000 acres, i got a 1,000 quarts. I've made that suggestion often over the past four or five months that in the past, if you have treated a given field, say, four times from New Year's to 4th of July with Roundup, then maybe you might get to spray it twice this year or three times. But you're probably going to encounter a situation where you're going to need to ration that volume of glyphosate. And I'd much rather have it after my crop comes out of the ground when competition is occurring than I had during burn down. I mean, I want a clean field when I plant my crop too, but I certainly want stuff to die when I've got my crop up and growing. Yeah, I, I can I can absolutely see your point there, but if I'm a, if I'm a grower who's going to put out two applications of glyphosate entire, like you said, from New Year's to the 4th of July, I'm thinking we're here burn down in one end crop because we have some other tools that we can use in crop. You know, there's always Dicamba and it's in technology. There's Liberty unless you can't get your hands on it. It's such a fluid situation that I, I just don't envy farmers right now. It's hard. It's hard to, to make sure. And I mean, There's so many farmers right now I thought to that are that are smiling because they've been bought a whole bunch this past winter. Right. When it first happened. So, but the guys that, that did not, and then the situation that happened with Bayer a week or so ago, where they don't have get the components to make the glyphosate, I'm just going to get even tighter. Problem is, okay, if you don't put it in burn down, and you say, well, I'm going to use Paraquat. All right. In Louisiana, we have a vision of Paraquat in September when you're desiccating soybeans. Or maybe like right before we're planting something in late April, early May. Well, humidity's higher and the sun's out. Particularly in September when it's, you know, 95 degrees, 95% humidity and I mean, you can't help but sweat. You spray bare and it's just like, bam. I mean, it just Almost by the time you make the other end of the field, your seed and homology. We're spraying paraquat at the same rate, but we're spraying paraquat 
in late January and February with the kind of weather we've had this year. You know, one day it's 70, the next day it's 30, overcast most of the time. It's just not beneficial to bear blocks. Then you add the airplane putting it out or ground reef going at seven or less gallons of water with their plot. We just not positioned that herbicide. It's not, we've not been fair to it, I reckon, the best way to say it. We're not giving it a fair shake. It's not going out in the right environmental conditions with 15 gallons of water with the right kind of nozzle to really do everything that that herbicide could potentially do. I agree 100% with what you said. And, and I was thinking about Liberty and supply aside, but you know, Liberty, we've never relied on Liberty during burn down. And one has been the price. It's always been a more expensive treatment than uh, some of the other traditional burn down herbicides. But two, we know Liberty's not going to work. It's just not going to do what you expect it to do if you spray it in February. And I think Paraquat is less sensitive to the environment than Liberty is, but it's still, like you described, absolutely sensitive to the environment, and it works much better at 90 than it does at 45. And if the sun's out, bright, nice sunshine, it works really, really well. All right, Daniel, so you've said a lot about driving by some of those fields where where producers have chosen to either include glyphosate or take glyphosate out of that tank mix. Can you walk us through some of the product choices that they're focusing on right now in those burn-down options? It's really been, with glyphosate not being there, which is the, the foundation traditionally, the, uh, they've been standing upon auction-type materials. Of course, 2,4-D, Dicamba, they both have strengths, they both have weaknesses. A lot of Elevore. Elevore's been a popular product. It's been um, does a really great job on henbit for us. It may be the, the best henbit product in, in my in my research. And uh, a lot of the guys that sprayed it have used it. I've heard it since, you know, Paraquat D, Paraquat Dicamba, Paraquat Elevore, Elevore Select, because uh, you just don't see the, the antagonism the antagonism issue, particularly target ryegrass, those we have a, a continually budding situation with um, ryegrass in the state. So, Elevore has been used a lot. Uh, I haven't heard of the guys talk about it being short. That's been a pretty popular treatment to us. But then, even a paraquat Elevore is just not being anywhere near as efficacious as a, a glyphosate Elevore, to be honest with you. So, it's not, we haven't been able to replace. The, the component and get no matter what we put in, I've just not seen the results that glyphosate 2,4-D or glyphosate or type traits has given us in the past. And for those listeners that maybe aren't so keenly aware of what Elevore contains, what are the components within Elevore? Halofluxin, methyl, it's one particular product. It's uh, some Brother Jason Crippen from Loyant. That's correct. Yeah, it's in the same family as Loyant. It's a good product. It's one ounce per acre, uh, which is really, really nice. If you've got Hendit, it is it's the answer. It's the answer. I mean, it's big old Hendit, even with powdery mildew on it. I mean, it's just an island. And it's good on mare's tail. And I'm sure it's got some other trees. It's got some weaknesses as well. 
I, I haven't seen a whole bunch of good activity on the primrose and spine crest and other things like that. But glyphosate has picked those things up, and the, the combination of them together did really well. And so uh, I would be concerned that paraquat element being broad spectrum as it should be. We've selected a lot of swine crests in the past few years, being paraquat heavy this time of year, and it's just not a great product on swine crests. And there's more than one swine crest. The one we have is lesser swine crest for what that's worth. That's the official common name of it. So I could see a, a mixture of paraquat and elevore really kind of confounding that. And swine crest. Uh, hey, it's ugly, but I remember reading it's got some allelopathic potential. It can really compete with corn, specifically just from that standpoint. I try to stress to growers to make sure they're very careful with the corn, particularly if they've got swine crest on They can run into some major issues. Well, it makes such a mat. I had not seen that about the actual chemical allelopathy, but I can see it being really competitive just because of its growth habit. It just It's usually real thick, and, and then it makes a big mat and messes up a lot of stuff, in my opinion. Yeah, and corn, when there's guys putting corn in the ground this week, they started last, this week before last, actually, the first corn I heard planted. They were not clean. Corn is so sensitive with it coming out of the ground to any kind of physical competition. In those mixtures with clethodim, Daniel, what are you telling folks on the clethodim rate? And just go with a two-pound to be in the middle. 10, 12 ounces. And then uh, as, it, as it gets bigger, increase your rate. And then it's like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, you know, if you got multi-pillared six to eight-inch ryegrass on the two-pound, I tend to go overkill because uh, I think we've been underdosing ryegrass with clethodim, which is why we're beginning to see resistance like you have. And I've always been a, a hammer. If you're going to do something, put out the right rate, just be a hammer. So early 12 pint, there's been some guys that's gotten too big on them. They, they've tried 20. And we're right there as well. If you look, read those clethodim labels and you focus in on ryegrass, it's going to say something like, in two to six inch ryegrass and it's going to say don't spray maybe it says tillering i know it says heading ryegrass with clethodim and particularly a year like the fall winter of of 2021 and 22 that we've had we passed that window a long time ago on most of ours uh, with the warm weather yeah. that we had throughout December, you know, we had a lot of vegetative growth. And like what you mentioned with paraquat kind of setting it up to fail, we hadn't always done clethodim any favors either. We've sprayed it on big stuff. And then, two, we can have a conversation during the summertime about it being too dry to spray. Weeds aren't growing, and you're not going to get good control because it's just too dry. But we don't ever talk about being too wet in the wintertime, we talk about maybe the plants not being healthy because it frosted hard on them, but we don't ever talk about the fact that that root has been sitting in saturated soil, and, and less so this year, but it's sitting in saturated soil for some untold period of time. If the soil is waterlogged and past hills, past you got sand in the water, yeah, that plant's not 
growing as it should. And look, all herbicides are predicated upon an actively growing plant. You know, it's small size and it's actively growing. We don't often follow proper fundamentals. Spraying when soils are too wet, it's just waterlogged. I mean, it's just, you're not being very efficient with the amount of money you're spending on these herbicides when you're doing that. You're just, you're, you're automatically setting it up for poor performance. The one thing I don't think you both have not covered would be the addition of an adjuvant and which adjuvant to select to add in the tank with some of those specific products you've mentioned. Clethodim prefers cropple. I forget exactly what the label says. Uh, I've read that recently, but I don't remember that particular part of it. But I mean, it prefers cropple. It does not like MSO. We don't typically use a lot of MSO during the burndown window. We have a couple products that prefer MSO. The gold standard for that would be Sharpen. Yeah, Sharpen just completely changed its level of control of a lot of things you know this is 15 years ago when we started using it and figured out hey that's not working like what we expected it to work and then we started putting mso and uan with it and it just completely changed and it, and it became a solid treatment for us at the time but clethodim absolutely prefers a crop oil kind of going out with sharpen avenue new product reviton it but have so, and I'm not completely comfortable with Reviton yet. I'm still collecting information on it. I know Jason's looking at it. Donnie Miller with LSU is looking at it as well. We do know it needs an MSO. And whenever a product requires an MSO, whether it's Reviton or Sharpen, that I know much, much better. I think like the Sharpen labels is MSO and AMS. So, somebody will say, well, the product A requires an MSO. MSO at 1% can be anywhere from $2 to $2.5 an acre. And then product A that requires that MSO is $6 an acre. Well, a surfactant or a crop oil gets you sent to a dollar. We just went just on an adjuvant and doubled that price. And that's, that's difficult, particularly in today's time when money is so tight. But it also highlights the fact that if you're going to use one of those products, you must put the proper adjective with it. It's like a great example. And I'll echo what you said about Reviton. We've done some stuff with Reviton. We have not done enough stuff with Reviton yet. And I think it's going to have a fit for us at some point, but we're still collecting data on it and trying to figure out exactly how it fits into our burndown programs at this point. I think it's got to fit. I just don't know where it fit is exactly. Just the data so far is fake. And I will tell you one thing. The rumors out there that it's a paraquat replacement, it is not a paraquat replacement. Right out. Bottom line. Boom. That's not fair to Reviton because there's not a paraquat no, replacement. There's not a paraquat replacement, not going to be a paraquat replacement, just like there's not going to be a Roundup replacement. There's not going to be an atrazine replacement, and you can probably put 2,4-D in there as well if we're talking about the burndown time. And There's a group of herbicides, your Roundups, your atrazines, your 2,4-Ds, paraquat, that are just your go-to solid performers, and we're not going to replace them with anything. Yeah, and I'll be clear, it's not it's not the manufacturer of Reviton to say that. 
that's just rumors going around. That's right. Amongst growers and amongst dealers. Not, the manufacturers not made that claim. They've actually said the opposite. What I say is not. We, we did, you know, myself and Donnie Miller and some others, we, we did look at it as a potential in soybean desiccation. Last I heard, it's not being pursued. So maybe that was the genesis of the, the rumor. But guys, don't sell Reverdon to a farmer telling him it's a fair quality place. It's just it's not. Amen. There's wishful thinking, and then there's how something actually works. Yeah. Dude, we appreciate you taking time off your day off to talk to us and uh, particularly driving down the road. And the cell service held too, man. I've been down that road that you're on probably even thousands of times. That's the way I used to go when I lived in Baton Rouge. I know it can get a little sketchy, so I appreciate y'all taking the time to talk to us, hug your girls for us, and y'all have a good trip. As always, we appreciate our continued listener base, and this is something that I think is important, and certainly talking about some of these supply chain issues is likely to continue throughout the year. Uh, continue to get in touch with us. You know, drop us some comments here and there. Feel free to contact us one-on-one. That's what we're here for. Good talk to you guys. Hey, I appreciate y'all including me. Uh, I get a lot of comments from folks that say, hey, I heard you on the, the Crop Doctor podcast hanging out with celebrities tonight. I don't know that I'd stretch it that far. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, be, you better be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging out with us too much. Well, y'all be careful, man. Enjoy your trip home. All right, man. Y'all take care. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.